once you start getting uh, your head around narrative structure and scripted, you, you just become a better storyteller overall. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Behind the Iris podcast. I'm your host, Camilo Castaneda. Hope you're all doing well. The UK has been getting a couple of heat waves, one or two or 20 it feels like. So I hope you're all hanging in there with your fans or air conditioning units if you are lucky. This episode was with my friend Lewis Hill who is a filmmaker, video editor that I met on a project that I was doing with DKD21 Media, the production company that my dad and I own. This episode was actually recorded back in May in the midst of a global pandemic, something that you may or may not know is going on right now. This was actually quite long, about an hour and a half, so I decided to split it up into two. In this episode, I talk with Lewis about telling better stories, how we translated music and the art of music into editing. We got a bit nerdy into sound design in films and how at the end of the day, it's all just watched and listened out of a cell phone, smartphone. Who says cell phone? I don't say cell phone. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, let's get started. Uh, my, my name and address uh, no but yeah hi I'm Lewis I'm a filmmaker from London I am in my last year of university about to graduate and uh, I've been working on uh, in this sort of realm from since I was 16 more or less I'm 21 now uh, I've started in corporate film uh, and corporate events actually I did a lot of events running um, then I joined a live events and television course because I was like, oh, I'm going to be working in events and corporate for the rest of my life. Um, started getting more involved in editing post-production and writing at university and uh, the rest is history, really. Um, my most recent project I've just come off was a 20-minute TV pilot um, that one of my friends produced and directed called So Dead which uh, we're hoping to get funding on. Um, Aside from that, I write my own comedy sketches and I uh, like to think I'm funny, Um, you know? It's... I I have depth, I like that. I like to think I say... I think I like to think I say um, what everyone's thinking in the room but doesn't want to say because that's when it's funny. <laughs> mhm mhm yes of course Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
Um, purely, purely writing by accident, actually. I mean, if I've been making films since 16, and the thing is, is that if you've, when you're taking, when you're making those films at such a young age, no one really has the confidence to think of a story or think of something. They always want to be behind the camera, you know, operating the camera and making things look nice. Um, I mean, I was very jealous because there was far better filmmakers than me throughout the ages of 16, 17, 18 in my classes, but there would be films you watched that were definitely shot better than the story was. Uh, and unfortunately for me, the, the story was often a lot better than the, what it was shot like, you know? So uh, in, initially it, it was more of a an accident more than anything. I mean, back then, that's, no way, that's not to say it was any good back then. That's just to say it was something I enjoyed doing. Um, and I think it's very reassuring when you're like, oh, uh, I want to make a film, but I don't want it to be a student horror film. I want it to be a comedy. It's very reassuring when your teacher can turn around to you and say, well, if anyone can do it in the class, it's probably going to be you. So to me, it was like, oh, that's that's pretty reassuring to hear, you know? Uh, exactly. Uh, and then I progressed through uni. Um, I'm dyslexic, so I actually find sitting down and writing very difficult. I get distracted easily. I actually sit, sit, sitting down and writing is something I actually have to force myself to do, really. Um, especially, like... If someone sends me an edit, they go, can I have notes? I'd like call them up straight away and go, right, well, get your pencil and paper out. I'm going to tell you what's wrong, you know, um, because going through and giving time-coded notes and it is a pain in the backside. But um, with... Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. This is it. I always try and give... Um, I, this is it. I, I, as, a, as an editor myself, I always try and give notes that um, sort of reflect what I would like to see. So, uh, personally, I'm big, big on quality. So, if, if any editing technical notes, I, I'd like to know. I'd like to see them, but I'd like to know... I'd like to hear about them in a way that an editor would, would appreciate to hear about them saying, oh, come on, like, you need to move a few frames here or your frames are doubled here or something like that. Whilst um, instead of someone going, oh, it's, it's gone funny here, you know, in the middle of the film. I'm like, come on, like, let's be precise. You know? <laughs> mm. Hundred percent. I think it's it, you know I like I'm a visual person, so I sit there and think in my head like, what does his timeline look like, and then I think how I would change it, you know. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure you can probably sympathise with that. You know, with uh, the writing overall. When I joined uni, actually, the thing that 
probably helped me get into writing the most was actually learning about narrative structure, uh, which is something I'd never done before during sixth form or uh, read up about, really. At the time, I think I hated it because uh, I was just like, you're telling me I've got to write five acts and I can't even figure out one, you know. But like actually like sitting there going, oh, yeah, here's a narrative piece and you can you can break it down into five different acts, which are your like uh, your your normality, your issue, your climax, your attempt to fix it, and then the finish, you know, or something like that. Then you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense, you know. And then you look at films, and then you're like, oh, that is exactly what I just said. That was the film right there, you know. Uh, it sort of ruined f- films for me because I, I when I watch them, I'm like, I bet you this is gonna happen, and it happens. I'm like, for fuck's sake, you know. <laughs> Mm. Once you start getting uh, your head around narrative structure and scripted, you you just become a better storyteller overall. You know, you can then sit there and go, oh, a music video, well, you've got to have a beginning, middle and end. Uh, Otherwise, you're just watching a live performance, really, which is fine. Some music videos are like that. Um, but you, if you're trying some conceptuality to it, then you need to think about the narrative. Uh, and equally with documentary pieces, they, are, in my opinion, are the hardest things to bring narrative to. Because unless you've got a good writer or a good director to it, a lot of the times it's just people filming other people and then writing down questions, asking questions, getting the answers, and then they sit there and go, good. Then they look back at everything they've got and go, right, what's the story? But, you know, whilst that's a perfectly valid way of working, like you've you've now just made things twice as hard for yourself. If you, you know, if you had a good understanding of story and you went in and directed it for that, then you've, you've cut your workload time in half, in my opinion, so... Mm. Well, it's it's not it's not finishing it off and going all right. So what what next? You know, you sit there and you finished it off, and it's like, oh, that was it. You know, that was really nice. You know, but not instead of being felt like left felt empty or something at the end. You're like, oh, it's it's a hard thing to learn, really. I think it's a hard thing to wrap your head around. Um, Yeah, well, I I always say that the writer, the three most important people, storytellers, at least on if we're looking at like a a macro level for the film, three most important storytellers are the writer, director, and editor, because the writer the writer writes it, the director tears it apart, 
and the editor sticks it all back together again. And they're all writers in their own right, I think. So, you know, when it comes down to editing, you are you are the last writer on the film, basically. Um. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think with, with actual like comedy writing, that came much later. That came um, when I realized I could make my friends laugh a lot in the pub. And then I started meet, meeting random people and making them laugh. And I thought, actually, you know, like, this is perfectly viable, you know. And then you sort of you sort of pick up on the jokes you're telling. You go, hang on, I've told that before. Or like, oh, that's a similar theme to one I've told before. And then you can tell another one that's similar. And then before you tell it, you're, before you know it, you're like, I'm practicing stand-up comedy material here, you know. Um, exactly, you know. Um it basically got to the point where I was like, actually, you know, I'm starting to be funny. I should probably start writing this down. Um, yeah, this is it. I mean, I, I, I love sketch shows. So like I studied for my dissertation. I did a lot of uh, research into comedy because I tried to write a conceptual piece, which kind of failed about um, defining cringe comedy and what it was as a genre. So what I, what I mean by cringe comedy is comedy that's, you know, a joke that's meant to make you feel uncomfortable, but then it's still funny. Stuff like a lot of what Ricky Gervais does, um, you know. It's, yeah, essentially dark humour, but, you know, it's talking about the line and, like, how you cross it and how that works sort of thing. But it's good, though. It's, uh, it's good to be... I mean, I think it's a very English thing to be self-depreciating, but so it's... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's endearment at the end of the day, you know, it's... It's that whole banter culture at the end of the day. I think it's the white in between us became sort of a rite of passage for most sort of 13, 14 year olds in the UK because it, it highlighted that and summed up summed it up perfectly, you know. Um mm, exactly. I, I got into stuff like would I lie to you and uh, have I got news for you and never mind the buzzcocks from quite a young age. So I really liked these panel shows where, um, you know, people would come on, they'd tell jokes, but they just rip into each other. And that's the whole point. You know, that's the, it's, it's half, it's, it's a, a, a quiz show that's there to facilitate the jokes more or less. Um, is it QI or Taskmaster? Oh, mock mock the week, mock the week, Dara with Dara, yeah. Um, it's just like it's like um, was it when they had the, the the open mic rounds and it would be like, um, say something inappropriate for a school assembly and it's like, uh, and now for registers, uh, most of the teachers here are on one, you know. <laughs> um, no, it, it's uh, I mean it's. 
that's why I grew up with watching. So I, it's it definitely inspired me. But I also really loved sketch shows, stuff like Little Britain. I mean, Little Britain is probably the most biggest one, but you've got that Mitchell and Webb look, which obviously Peep Show is not a sketch show as well, but David Mitchell is like a big, big IT crowd. Again, not sketch show, but it's like that's like comedy sitcom type thing. Um, but I, I, sketch show would be like, um, would be a show that's sort of like a compilation of loads of different shows, uh, loads of different segments. So, I mean, Little Britain's probably the best example because it's it, all it is is basically like reoccurring characters that only have like short segments. That's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, pretty much. And then they'll be all be in different scenarios, and maybe there'll be like twenty different individual sketches within an episode. But then next week there'll be all the same characters in different situations and it'll be funny you know um whilst something like it crowd which i love i, I really love um matt, matt berry when he came in later just had me in bits uh, and i've been a fan of his work ever ever since it's just really well written and richard iwadi he's so well cast for moss he really is you know this is it i mean from what a lot of the research i've done and talking to like people who actually work in telly there's a lot of talking about getting pigeonholed you know you do you edit drama you will never edit comedy you know uh you edit the promos well this is this is this is why like very early on i was advised to sort of find my niche you know and sort of stick to it and it's it's a very, I mean, it's a very odd thing. I mean, I did, I've done work experience at a post-production house and they asked me what I wanted to do. And I was just like, well, I want to edit offline editing, which is like the storytelling side of editing. But I also have an interest in sound mixing because you know, I'm a musician, I play guitar. I, but I also, I don't record my own stuff, but I like doing it live. So I was just like, oh, you know, and I've done a bit of mixing on like, sh like shorts I've done or anything I've done editing wise. So I was just like, oh, it'll be cool to learn more about that. And I might want to get into it if I learn more about it. But then they, they sat there and said, you've got to learn one or the other because like the audio guys here are like technicians and then the, the editing guys here are like, you know, the creative people. And I was just like, okay, that's quite, quite a big disparity there, you know. Hmm. Mm. some fire fire for some trap artists to sing over um I mean, do you, do you feel that that musical knowledge has helped you with your editing? Like, I certainly feel it has for me, you know?
A little story in itself, really, isn't it? This is it. Yeah. Yeah. You really do. This is it. I mean, a, a, an, an editor is like the first viewer of the film, even if it's not cut yet. So you've got to think, like, if I'm watching this, how do I not get bored at the end of the day? I mean, a way I always do it is, like, I have my... I have my set up with my laptop and my my extra monitor and I edit on that but then when I when I go okay I've got an edit version I re I think this could be close to completion what I actually do is just plug in and I, like I've got an old tv that's hd ready so I just plug in that and I watch it on the tv and think if this was on tv how would it make me feel you know what it's like you've got to get really into the mindset. It's like it's reverse reverse engineering it almost, you know. Mm. Exactly, which is like you know, a little different now. Everyone's got big TVs at homes, but like I watch on a tiny thing that's like probably like. A, 16 inch monitor or something like that and I, I think it's very humbling to look at your work like that and be like that's on telly let's figure it out especially when you're looking at longer form stuff you know for for short form stuff like that fine yeah watch it on like watch it on the computer that's probably where it's going to be viewed instagram Well, I think it's that culture of like viewing, but not not everyone lives around their computer really. Like people live on social media, but social media exists on other platforms. That's the thing. I mean, it's very interesting because there was um, a lecture I listened to. Guy, if you've, I'm sure if you heard of Walter Merch, he's I've probably chatted to you about him before, but he's um, basically he edited Jarhead, Apocalypse Now. Loads of like cult classic films, and he wrote a book called In the Blink of an Eye. Very, very good book. You should definitely read it if you haven't. Um, but In the Blink of an Eye, yeah, if you Google it, it comes up. But the the he, this lecture, somebody asked him, uh, which I thought was quite funny. Someone says, because uh, he also doesn't do it, doesn't just do editing. He does he does um sound mixing, and he started doing sound mixing before he did editing, and he came up with this theory i fed to call it a theory called worldizing which is how we'd mix the sound but made to sound like it would in real life 
So, for instance, if you were at like a party, the speakers were outside, that when you come inside, the music is going to sound different. So it makes it in a way that makes it sound different, you know? I've, I, I've, it's on my watch list. I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's very tinny, yeah. Exactly. It adds like spatial context to the way you are, I think. Um, but it, exactly. It's, um, sound design is a very wonderful thing. And my, and Dimi, our, our mutual friend, he turned around to me and said, to me, when I'm on set and I see a sound guy, they just have big question marks over their heads because these are, these are very strange individuals. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was chatting to a guy and he goes, oh, so I was like, oh, Sandy's generally have good taste in music. He goes, I was like, oh, so what music are you into? He goes, uh, a psychedelic electro funk. Uh, I'm also a DJ. And I was just like, of course you are. I would never meet anyone else who wasn't. Um, I digress. But um, going back to much, like he was asked, so you've mixed The Godfather, you've mixed Apocalypse Now. Um, how does it make you feel when these films go on Netflix and somebody watches it through their iPhone? You know, <laughs> and it's like you know this guy. This guy's like spent maybe eight to twelve weeks working on a on a film uh, to try and uh, you know mix it in a way that sounds good in like a five point one surround sound system, and then somebody watches it on like the stereo speakers that aren't really stereo because they're just at the bottom of your phone. Exactly, exactly. This guy's like heartbroken because he's spent like twelve weeks going now oh, that that you know channel four needs to be slightly you know one decibel higher and pan to the right more, and then someone's watching on their phone and all you can hear is just two channels. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Just sounds the same. <laughs> yeah, this is it. Uh, it's the same on like some computers though, you know, uh, some laptops. Uh, it's not too different. Obviously, they're slightly better because you have bigger hardware, but not a million miles away. I think so. Yeah. Well, arguably a lot of the, a lot of like, especially with say vlog style videos, like it makes sense to have that because it just fills in a gap. Um, and you wouldn't, 
this is it. And you wouldn't necessarily add, you know, create some like next sound design over a vlog because they're more direct than films, if that makes sense. You know? Exactly. It's but the immediate gratification, yeah. It's like if you have it in a film, it makes sense because it could be two people talking to each other in a pub and if it didn't sound like a pub, then all of a sudden, like, what's the point? You know, you've got to make it seem real, that the, the wall is broken. Um, but with um, something like a vlog, if I was looking directly at the camera and talking to it, you're, just, you're engaged a little bit more you, as a viewer. So it's interesting. Let's stop talking about sounds. We we can we're far better than that, you know. <laughs> so that's it for part one. Stay tuned for part two, where we go into a discussion about film school versus being self-taught in the filmmaking industry. Uh, we also talk about TikTok's effect on creativity and video editing. So so it's gonna be a nice episode uh, next week. So uh, stay tuned. I'll see you guys on Tuesday.